Thank you, Jonathan and the choir. I'm going to invite you to find Micah chapter 5 with me this morning, please. Micah chapter 5. I want to talk this morning on the subject matter, God's gift to you. God's gift to you. While you're finding Micah and your copy of the scripture, uh, let me ask you to be in prayer for a number of our, our families. I know uh, Kevin mentioned some of these, but uh, Morgan Weatherby, an 18-year-old girl that has family in our church, she was hit head-on a number of months ago and has been fighting for her life. Well, she has gone home to glory. Uh, we do not have the arrangements yet, uh, still waiting to hear back from Morgan's family, but certainly pray for them at this time of the year. Uh, this coming Tuesday at 10 a.m. in the sanctuary, we will have visitation for Larry Marlowe, and then at 11 a.m. will be the funeral service and then his burial is right here in the church cemetery and then friendly neighbors as kevin announced is delaying one hour so they can attend if they desire and they will be beginning at uh, 12 30. Uh, also pray for me i'll be going immediately following this service traveling about an hour to do a funeral for one of my neighbors uh, their mom that passed away and so a number of families this time of year are obviously experiencing loss. We see that a good bit between Thanksgiving and Christmas each year. It's strange how we see such a large number of uh, funerals, but pray for all of these families. Let me say a word of thanks to the Finance Committee, their hard work on the budget this year, and for you, your giving, it's been a very strong year of giving. Uh, but thank, thank you to the Finance Committee who put in many hours preparing uh, this coming year's budget, and we'll be uh, notifying you of the results of the, the vote uh, this morning. Uh, I'm going to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, please. God's gift to you, Micah chapter 5, a text that we refer to often when we talk about the wise men. And I'll go over that a little bit later in the message, talking about the wise men and how Micah, the prophecy in Micah, indicated where the wise men were to go and find the Christ child, the religious leaders told him. But probably we don't read the text of Micah itself very much. So this morning we will. Mobilize, marshal your troops. The enemy is laying siege to Jerusalem. They will strike Israel's leader in the face with a rod. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf. The people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies until the woman in labor gives birth. Then at last his fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land. And he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Then his people will live there undisturbed. 
for he will be highly honored around the world, and he will be the source of peace. Father, thank you for this Sunday in Advent where we celebrate peace. And we know that there is only peace because of Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace. Lord, we see people in the world looking for peace from sources that cannot provide it. At best, some of those sources can only provide a temporary peace. But Lord, we thank you for the peace that we have in Jesus, our Savior and Lord. The scripture says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Lord, I pray that if there are any here today who do not know Christ in a personal way, that today you would move upon their hearts and draw them to faith in Jesus. God, I pray that this Christmas could be different for, for them. That this Christmas would be the first time that by experience, the experience of the new birth, they truly understand what this season is all about. Lord, use my words today to speak to your people. I thank you for this church. God, I thank you for the open door that you have set before us to proclaim your word. Lord, I pray that each of us would look around to those who are in need this season and that we would reach out to them with the love of Christ. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, the year was 1914. It was the first Christmas of World War I. Now, what happened next, according to an article in the Wall Street Journal, was absolutely amazing and astounding. British and German troops put down their guns in their respective trenches on the Western Front, and they began celebrating Christmas together in the no-man's land between the two sides. The Germans lit candles and put them on the tree so that the English could see. The English lit bonfires and set off fireworks so the Germans could see. The soldiers came out of their trenches and they began exchanging gifts. Gifts that had been sent to them from home. They exchanged gifts of tobacco, jam, sausage, chocolate, liquor, and they traded names and addresses with one another. They sang Christmas carols together and played games of soccer between the shell holes and the barbed wire. They even went so far as to visit one another's trenches. The day is called the most famous truce in military history by British television producer Malcolm Brown. Private Oswald Tilly of the London Rifle Brigade wrote to his parents. He said, just you think that while you were eating your turkey, I was out talking and shaking hands with the very men that I'd been trying to kill just a few hours earlier. He said it was astounding. 
Now high command on both sides got wind of what was going on and took steps that it could never happen again. They feared that if this kind of sentiment spread further, it would take away the will of the soldiers to kill those on the other side. But folks, that story shows us something. It seems that even in the midst of warfare, what do men crave? They crave peace. It's been reported that since the beginning of recorded history, the world has only been at peace approximately 7 or 8% of the time. During that same time, more than 8,000 peace treaties have been broken. Now that begs the question, doesn't it? Is peace on earth really possible? Well, the prophet Micah lived and prophesied in the 8th century B.C. with his prophecies occurring during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now that makes him a contemporary of the better-known prophet Isaiah. Also makes him a contemporary of Amos. And like Amos, Micah was a country boy. Micah was a country preacher. He came from the poorer classes of Israel, and he was acutely aware of many of the injustices in the land. Now, according to one Old Testament scholar, R.K. Harrison, when we look at the manuscripts from 8th century prophets, actually the manuscripts of the book of Micah are some of the very best manuscripts that we possess today. Micah explained that because of the sins of Israel, God had sent the Assyrians as his arm of punishment. And after that, God was going to send the Babylonians to punish Judah. But the people weren't to lose hope. Because following God's discipline was going to become a time of tremendous peace and blessing. Peace and blessing that would be connected directly to the coming of the Messiah. At some time in the future, he prophesied that a woman would give birth to a child in Bethlehem, and this child, proclaimed the prophet, will be the one who is the source of peace. You remember what Isaiah called him in Isaiah 9? The Prince of Peace. Some seven to 750 years later, in a cave on the outskirts of Bethlehem, a virgin by the name of Mary gave birth to this promised Messiah who would bring peace. Folks, what we see in our text today is that God has intervened in human history for the benefit of those who come to faith in His Son. God gives us his peace. It's a promise for those who know Christ. Now the first thing I want you to notice with me this morning is the place of his birth prophesied. He says in verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, and yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf. 
Now again, like, like many of the other prophets, what Micah has been doing, he's been confronting the sins of the people and the sins of the nation. The background of Micah 5 is that the people of Israel and the people of Judah have gone astray of their own accord and they've also been led astray by ungodly leaders. Year after year, the people... Uh, God had given the people sometimes good leaders, very good leaders. Sometimes bad leaders, sometimes God gave them not who they needed, but who they deserved. But God had often given them good leaders, and yet even in spite of that, oftentimes the people of their own accord had rebelled and gone astray. And now, added to their disobedience was the fact that once again, as we look at our text, they're being faced with bad leaders. Bad leaders who had failed to lead them in the ancient paths. You ought to write down Jeremiah 6, 16. That verse says, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not do that. We will not walk. The rulers didn't rule justly, the shepherds didn't shepherd, and the prophets didn't prophesy God's truth, the false prophets did. And because of all this, I, as I, I've mentioned earlier, the northern kingdom would be judged by the Assyrians, and in the final analysis, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of Israel, would pretty well cease to exist. The southern kingdom, made up of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, would be disciplined by the Babylonians, carried off into exile for 70 years. And yet God would preserve the southern kingdom because the Messiah would be coming through that lineage. But what Micah is saying, along with the other prophets, judgment is coming, God's judgment. And you know, it's a reminder to us of what Paul in Galatians says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. We don't get away with sin and rebellion. They weren't going to get away. And so God was warning them. And it shows us, folks, God never sugarcoats sin. As the scripture says, sin is a reproach to any people. My, as Micah pointed out, uh, judgment was coming. And the people would have nobody to blame but themselves. But through Micah, God was also telling his people that he would regather them in the land. He would send them the Messiah, and eventually the Messiah would lead all the world. And so Micah's prophecy actually encompasses the time from the first advent of Christ all the way to the second advent of Christ. But all of their hopes would be centered on this one that God would give them. And folks, God is so specific in his promise that he tells them where the Messiah is going to come from. 
Verse 2 points out that Bethlehem Ephratah will be the place where their hope will be restored. Now I want you to think about what's going on here. 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, God told his people exactly where these things would take place. Is that not amazing? And we're told furthermore that it's such a small place, it's an insignificant place in the eyes of the world. And that's surprising to people. When God sends his son, our Messiah, he's not going to be born in a palace in Rome. He's not going to be born in one of the families of the Caesars. He wouldn't even be born in the family of one of the religious leaders of Jerusalem. His arrival into this world would be so quiet and unassuming that all the world would miss it. Just about all the world, that is. Everybody would overlook it. In fact, the religious leaders in Matthew 2 themselves do not even go to investigate after they speak to the, to the wise men. We come to the New Testament, we find Micah 2, Micah 5 2, that is being fulfilled. If you go home this afternoon and read Luke chapter 2 in your Bibles, you're going to read right off about a census that Augusta declared that was to take place throughout all the world at that time. And everyone was to go back to their hometown to register for this census. That's why Mary and Joseph end up in Bethlehem. Folks, I want you to think about the sovereignty of God in all this. Joseph and Mary would have otherwise not been in Bethlehem. God engineers a worldwide census to get Mary and Joseph exactly where they needed to be in order for this prophecy given eight centuries before to be fulfilled. Is that not amazing? The sovereignty of God is an amazing thing. And I hope it brings a great deal of comfort to your life because it tells you and me that things are not out of control. It might seem like the world is out of control at times, but folks, we need to be reminded God is in charge. Romans 8, 28, Paul said that God uses all things together for the good of those who love him. As I've told you many times before, that doesn't mean that everything that happens in your life, that you would go home and, and tell people that it's good because there are bad things that happen to people. And we don't want to overlook that. There are horrible things that happen to people and very hurtful things. But in the lives of those who are God's children, God can use even bad things and bring ultimate good. How can God do that? Because he's a sovereign God. He's a providential God. He's the one in control of your life and my life. He's, he's the one in, in control of human history. Folks, things aren't spinning out of control. As crazy as 2020 has been, things aren't spinning out of control. I mean, they are, but it's just as God has planned it. It's part of his overall purpose. Also, think about how fitting it would be for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. 
John, in the great I am statements of the Gospel of John, where Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the true vine. One of the things that Jesus says to identify himself, he says, I'm the bread of life. Bethlehem literally means the house of bread. Bethlehem, the little town of Bethlehem, was the bread basket of that part of the world back then. And in the town that was the breadbasket for that region, one would be born who is the bread of life. Furthermore, there were two Bethlehems. Do you realize that? You can read in the book of Joshua when the people start going in and taking possession of the land. And up in the northern reaches, there was a Bethlehem up there in western Galilee. And then there was Bethlehem that was down only about six miles away from Jerusalem. Bethlehem Ephratah. So seven to seven hundred and fifty years before Mary and Joseph travel down to Bethlehem Ephratah and Jesus is born there in a cave. The prophet Micah said, it would all take place in Bethlehem, Ephraim. God is that specific. He's that specific. And we know what happened in Matthew chapter 2. The wise men come looking for Jesus. They see his star. And, and when they found him, they gave gifts worthy of a king. They go to the religious leaders of Jerusalem and say, where's, where's all this to take place? And the religious leaders said, Bethlehem Ephratah. They're quoting from Micah 5.2, our text this morning. I want you to think about what's happening there with the wise men. I'll talk about them just for a moment because Micah 5 factored so much into their search. Who were they? They were the wise men, the magi, the great or the powerful ones. They first appear in history in the 7th century B.C. as a tribe within the Median nation uh, in eastern Mesopotamia. It, it, would be, it would also be like Abraham. They would be like Abraham coming from the area of Ur of the Chaldeans. That's the area where they seem to have come from. The name Magi soon came to be associated strictly with, with the priesthood within that tribe. And they became skilled in astrology and astronomy. They were involved in various occult practices, including sorcery. They were especially noted for their ability to interpret dreams. In fact, it's from their name that our words magic and magician are derived. Because of their combined knowledge of science and mathematics and agriculture and history and the occult, their religious and political influence continued to grow until they became the most powerful and prominent group of advisors in the Medo-Persian Empire and also the Babylonian Empire. They were referred to as the wise. 
No Persian was ever able to become king without mastering the disciplines of the Magi and being approved and crowned by the Magi. And so the Magi had become known as the king makers. The king makers. Now folks, let all this set in. These pagan wise men see this star and they know God's doing something and they want to know him. And they travel all of these great distances to arrive in Jerusalem and talk to the religious leaders about where the Messiah is to be born. And when they find out what do these king makers do, they go and find Jesus and they find the baby Jesus and the king makers bow down before him in homage. Let all that sink in. We learn also from the book of Daniel that they were among the highest ranking officials in Babylon because of God's blessing on, on Daniel's life, even though Daniel was not a magi. He was placed all over all of the wise men in Babylon, including the magi. It seems certain that the Magi probably learned about the one true God from Daniel. Because many Jews stayed in Babylon after the exile, Messianic hopes among this group remained strong right up until the time of the New Testament. And so what's Matthew doing in his gospel with the Magi? He's interested in showing how even powerful Gentiles came to seek Jesus when his own people rejected him. But folks, what I want you to see is the fulfillment of prophecy in all of this. Again, the book of Micah, 8th century B.C., specific. He will come from Bethlehem, Ephratah, and that's exactly where Jesus was born. A worldwide census to get Mary and Joseph there. And then the Magi go searching for him and find him there. Prophecy. Do you realize there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about the person and work of Jesus Christ? And this is one of those. Folks, it is a mathematical impossibility for one person to be the fulfillment of over 300 prophecies without being the person those prophecies refer to. If you're searching for Christ and wondering if he really is who the Bible says he is, I mean, just think about that. It, it would be a mathematical impossibility for Jesus not to be the Messiah. If you look at all of the fulfilled prophecy, he has to be who the scripture says that he is. And so fulfilled prophecy continues to give believers today a great deal of confidence in their faith and assurance in their faith. Well, the second thing I want you to see with me this morning, the purpose of his life promise. Look at verses 2 and verse 4. Verse 2 says... Yet a ruler of Israel whose origins 
or in the distant path will come to you on my behalf. Look at verse 4. And he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Then his people will live there undisturbed for he will be highly honored around the world. He will both rule and shepherd his people. In verse 2 we see the thought of ruling and in verse 4 we see the thought of shepherding. And notice what it says about him in verse 2. Surely this is no ordinary ruler because this is the one whose goings forth have been from of old. Some translations say of old, like dating back, he was of David's line. And some carry it to his logical conclusion. Some translations say he's from eternity past. Both are communicating the same thing. They're talking about this one is going to be more than just a mere man. He's going to be the God-man. While every man alive will live into the future through eternity in either heaven or hell, it cannot be said that every man existed from eternity past, and yet he did. What John say in John 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's saying when the beginning rolled around, when time as we know it and creation as we know it started, the Word was already there. There's never been a time that He was not. He's always existed. And He was face to face with God, and He was God. God the Son. Folks, as we look at verses 2 and 4, the, the problem is, again, they have been cursed by bad rulers and bad shepherds. I mentioned to you last week when Solomon died and Rehoboam, his son, took over. The older advisors to Rehoboam said, you need to ease up on the people. Your dad taxed them heavily. They need some relief. He was tough on them. Some of the young bucks came along, advisors to Rehoboam, and said, you need to be even harder on them than your dad was. Rehoboam had a choice to make. He went with the advice from the younger advisors, told the people he was going to be much harder on them than his dad Solomon ever was. And so, and so Jeroboam led ten tribes to break off. So Israel became a divided nation, Israel and Judah. Israel, the ten tribes, the northern kingdom, Judah, the two tribes of the southern kingdom. And so that the tribes from the northern kingdom would not go back down to Jerusalem and worship God because Jeroboam was afraid if they went back down to Jerusalem to worship God, their hearts would go back, back down that way and they would come under Rehoboam's rule. And so what he does in the ten northern tribes in the north of that region, he sets up an altar with golden calves of all things and then right above Jerusalem, but still in the northern kingdom, he sets up another altar with golden calves and told the people to go to those altars and worship the golden calves. 
it's hard to believe that they would be guilty of doing something like that again. They did it when Moses led them out of, out of Egypt, and Moses was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, and Aaron formed for them, made for them that golden calf, and they worshipped it in an anger God. But here they are doing it again. That's the kind of bad leadership that they had had. And they had suffered. And then the shepherds in Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel is told, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who've been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? And so here the people had bad rulers and bad shepherds, both of those, they were suffering. And because of that, they had been led astray to rebel themselves. And God's coming along and telling them he's going he's gonna to judge them for this. But God is also promising here in Micah that he's going to do more than judge. He's also going to provide the ultimate solution. He's going to send them the Messiah who would not only be their Savior, but also the one who will guide them in the He's going to be the king of kings and lord of lords. The greatest ruler that people could ever have to live under the rule of King Jesus. And he'll never lead us in bad ways. And he's going to shepherd his people. As Jesus said in John 10, he's the good shepherd. He knows the sheep by name. perfect ruler and a perfect shepherd. Is Jesus your ruler? Is he your shepherd? A great contrast is being set up here. What Micah is showing and what you and I need to see today is the contrast between our solution and God's solutions. We can have rulers that are bad rulers. We can have shepherds that are bad shepherds. But in him, there is perfection. He's the Lord of life. He's the good shepherd and the king of kings. Folks, what Micah is showing us should say what God is showing us through Micah. Jesus Christ is going to be the fulfillment of what men down through the ages have dreamed of and hoped for and prayed for. And what men in their sin can't do, God What the scripture is showing us that all the solutions of the world that we turn to are bankrupt. 
Even things that we turn to momentarily that might help. In the final analysis, all of these things in the world that we turn to for answers and direction are ultimately going to disappoint us. But what does Paul say in the book of Romans? Romans chapter 5, they who put their hope in him shall never be disappointed. If you're looking for something other than looking to Jesus, it's not going to help you. It's not going to deliver you. It's not going to provide for you what down deep inside you truly desire. What you desire in the depths of your mind and heart and soul can only be found in Jesus Christ. And this is God's doing. It's not man's third thing I want you to see today, the priority of his ministry proclaimed, verse 5, and he will be the source of peace. Folks, it's interesting what the prophet is saying here. If we were to read on in verse 5, we would see a reference to when Sennacherib came into Israel and attacked and told Hezekiah that they would be destroyed, Sennacherib, the Assyrian ruler, mocked Hezekiah and told him he was going to demolish him. Hezekiah and the people prayed. The Assyrian commander went into his camp, and he saw that overnight 185,000 of his troops lay dead. Sennacherib tucked his tail and went back to Assyria, a humiliated man. The Lord had come into the camp of the Assyrians and utterly destroyed them and miraculously delivered Israel out of the hand of her enemy. And that's used here in Micah 5 as an assurance. As the Lord had brought peace to his people in that one historical setting, so he will again. But this time, through his Messiah, it will be an everlasting peace. It won't be a one-time thing. It wouldn't be some type of event that would come and, and, and go, leaving only a temporary solution or a temporary peace. The peace of the Messiah is an everlasting peace that never ends. First of all, there will be peace with God. Through God's Messiah, we can have peace with God. Jerome, a leader in church history, said he had a dream one night. And in that dream, he collected all of his money and offered it to Jesus as a gift. And Jesus said, I don't want your money. And so he rounded up all of his possessions. And Jesus said, I don't want your possessions. Jerome then turned to Christ and asked, what then can I give you? And Jesus responded, give me your sins. That's what I came for. I came to take away your sins. Forgiveness brings peace with God. We have the cleansing of our sins through Jesus, what he did. And the result of that is peace. Folks, this kind of peace has nothing to do with circumstances. This transcends all understanding and all circumstances. 
when you have peace with God because you know that all of your sins have been placed on Jesus and Jesus died for you in your place. He bore your sin and took the wrath of God that you and I deserve and he bore that that you and I might have life. And as a result of that, we're reconciled to a holy God and we have peace with and because we have peace with God, we can have the peace of God. There can be peace in our lives. And then we can be at peace with others. This is the peace that Micah is prophesying that people will find in Jesus Christ, God's Messiah. This is the kind of peace that the world is looking for. And the world is looking in all the wrong places. It can all be found in Christ. And then one day, according to Isaiah 65, God says, Behold, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offering of the, of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Folks, one day, all will be at peace. All will be at peace. But even now, through faith in Jesus Christ, you can enjoy this peace in your heart and mind. And you can look forward to what God has waiting for us in the future. Amen? This Christmas, do you have this peace? Do you have peace with God? Or are you still looking to earthly sources that cannot supply you? Do you need a shepherd? Jesus is the good shepherd. Because of his death, burial, and resurrection, he will give you his peace and his guidance. And your name will be written. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
You can have Christ in your heart. You can have peace with God. And know that all your sins are forgiven. And everything you crave in your heart, He supplies in ways that the world can never give. But you must come to Him. Father, we thank you for this prophecy of Micah. Showing the contrast between what they had in the world and what God was going to do in the Messiah. Father, people today still look to the wrong sources. They look to means which cannot supply what they crave. Lord, open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds to see clearly what you have given us in Christ. He's your ultimate gift to us. This Christmas, the world is divided. The world doesn't experience peace. But help us to display we know the Prince of Peace. He's the source of peace. Lord, every day may we come aside from the rat race of the world and spend time at your feet to dwell on what you have done. Lord, I pray that this Christmas season, those that we know that don't know Christ, they're still looking. Give us the courage and the boldness to open our mouths and share with them the hope and the peace and the light.